You know, I grew up in uh, Central Florida, on the West Coast, along the Gulf Coast of Florida, and I don't know about you, but as a kid and a young adult, I loved, I loved Christmas. Um, I loved Christmas not because it was ever cold, because it wasn't, nor because it ever snowed, it didn't, but I loved Christmas for, from the fact of just being able to gather with family um, and ch exchange presents and all the things that you can think of that go along with Christmas. But there was something different about my family, and maybe similar to some families here, in that I grew up in a non-religious family. I grew up in a family that never attended church. Um, actually, um, I don't believe I even got the connection between Christmas and Jesus until I was around nine or ten years old. Um, that's how separate the holiday was in regards to my family. Regardless, though, I loved, I loved the holiday. Like I said, I love gifts. I love giving gifts. I love getting gifts. I love decorating the trees. I love looking at the lights. Um, I love celebrating with my family, and it was mostly about our family. We would get together um, with the entire family. You know, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my uncle, my nieces, my nephews, my aunts, everyone would be together in one house or two houses or multiple houses celebrating Christmas. But as quickly as Christmas came, the day would end, and we'd all go home, most of us happy, at least that's how I fondly remember it, most of us happy. Um, and the next day, we would begin thinking, 364 more days to Christmas. Again, it was usually fun, it was usually exciting, and, and I have great memories of this. But when I do look back upon those holidays, um, it's obvious that Jesus was never a part of who we were or what the holiday was about. And I think as a society today even, right, I think maybe even more so than in the 70s and 80s, um, we really have two different celebrations going on simultaneously in our culture today. One has Santa or family as the focus, and one has Jesus as the focal point with family. My hope today, though, is to show us that Christmas is rooted in Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who came to give us an eternal hope of something greater, a hope that can't be taken away because it's a hope that's centered in Jesus, and it doesn't end with Christmas Day. It's an eternal hope that we have every day as we're united to him in faith. Today, we're going to look at this passage and focus on these first 14 verses in Luke chapter 2, and I want us to see a few things in this passage. First, I want, to see that, I want us to see that this is real history that involves real people. Secondly, I want us to see that this is really the story of why Jesus came. And lastly, I want us to look at the fact that what is our response to his coming? How are we to respond to his coming? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, or <clears throat> excuse me, 1 through 7, uh, Luke begins his account of the Christmas story with the words, in those days. Notice the story does not begin with once upon a time, or if you're a Star Wars fan, a, in a galaxy, or in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And the reason, of course, it doesn't begin this way is because it's not a, a fairy tale, nor is it a myth, but it is one day in history that's a world-altering day, a world-altering day for, for all of us. Luke is writing about an historical event that he puts historical markers around Jesus' birth for us. And my guess is that he wanted Theophilus and us to know, or at least to have some idea of when Jesus was born. Now, he doesn't give us a precise, precise or an exact date, but it, he does give us some parameters to work with to determine when Jesus was born. Luke goes on in this passage to speak of the actions of the Roman emperor and later adds another marker in this text by mentioning the name of the governor of Syria in verse 2. 
Both Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are real people in real history. Caesar Augustus, Augustus was known as Octavian before he became emperor and was the successor to Julius Caesar. He was actually the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, but was later adopted by him. And at Caesar's death, at Julius Caesar's death, he was appointed one of, the th one of three rulers in the Roman Empire. He ruled in the western part of the Roman Empire. And, and you guys, this is all history in high school that you've gotten, or, or at least through Shakespeare, you know of Julius Caesar, right? But he, um, Octavian ruled in the west. Mark Anthony Cleopatra, uh, Cleopatra ruled in the west, in the east. And they had this civil war in the Roman Empire, and out of this civil war, um, Octavian, who now is going to become uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, is vic has a victory over Aunt Mark Anthony and, and Cleopatra, and he unites the empire again, um, and he's declared to be the emperor of the Roman Empire, not because um, there was something necessarily great about him, but simply because the Roman army backed him. Um, he had defeated his enemies, and thus the Senate declared him to be the emperor. We also know from chapter 1 that um, during this time, King Herod was ruling in Judah. And, and Herod was basically a vice-regent of Rome. He was appointed by the Roman rulers. Uh, he was hated by the Jewish people because he wasn't of uh, the line of David or the lineage of David. And so he was <clears throat> excuse me, actually kicked out of office one time and then reappointed again by Caesar Augustus. You take, we take um, Caesar Augustus, who ruled from... 27 BC to 14 AD, and you take um, King Herod the Great, who died at four, in 4 BC. And we know then that Jesus was born sometime, from four, B, sometime uh, from 4 BC or sooner. So most historians, most um, commentators will put Jesus' death sometime between, or birth sometime between 4 and 6 BC. Again, Luke provides us some parameters to work with to work that out. Again, I think wanting us to know when Jesus was born simply because this is a historical person, uh, this is history, this wasn't a myth, this wasn't a fairy tale to be believed. Excuse me. Luke continues in the text, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The purpose of this decree was to collect a tax for the empire, which required people to return to their hometown to be registered and to pay the tax. The amazing aspect of this decree is that on the surface it appears to be Caesar orchestrating the reason for Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem. But in reality, the decree of Augustus is done in submission to the decree of our triune God. Luke doesn't mention this decree directly, but Matthew does in chapter 2, verse 6, where he writes, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, you all will remember, if you were here last Sunday, that David preached on this same text um, from Micah 5.2. But it's important to remember that this text was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Which then means that God, who is really the true high king, not Caesar Augustus, decreed that his son Jesus would, be, would come into this world at a specific time, in a specific place, for a specific mission. Now look, this is just one of many prophetic promises that Scripture gives to us regarding the promised Messiah. All right, during the past four Sundays of Advent, we have read many of the traditional prophetic pronouncements of the coming Christ. Uh, these promises of a coming Messiah go all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, 
where God in Genesis 3.15 says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of Eve is none other than Jesus who will overcome the serpent. The promise of a redeemer is carried forward and developed more fully in the Old Testament and then even with greater clarity in the New Testament. In chapters 1 and 2, Luke takes many of these promises, right, these prophetic promises, and he reminds us that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin, of the house and lineage of David, that he would rule a kingdom without end, and he will save his people from their sin. Without saying so directly in these first two chapters, Luke shows us that God's promised Messiah has come to establish a kingdom with him as the king in order to rescue his people from their deadly plight, to rescue his people from their sin. You know, almost every year, I would say at least for the last 10 to 12 years, my family and our family has read a very small book called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Uh, it's written by a woman named Barbara Robinson. Uh, maybe some of you have read it or watched the movie. <clears throat> If you have it, let me encourage you, after the service, go, go and find this book. It's 60, 70 pages. It's a great, it's a little fantastic book to read during the holidays. But it, this book is told from the perspective of an 11- or 12-year-old girl. She's the narrator. And the story revolves around six brothers and sis sisters called the Herdmans. Their last name is the Herdmans. They range in age from 5 to 12, and they are absolutely the worst children in the world, according to the narrator. They lie, they steal, they smoke, they start fires, they take the name of the Lord in vain, and they bully their peers. The story is about the herdmen deciding to come to church for the first time because they heard there were snacks. There was food at the church, and this family grew up in poverty. Uh, with Their father had left them, their mother was working full-time, and they just didn't have a lot of um, financial means, nor a lot of food in their house. So they found this church, and they decided, we're going to go to church um, this Sunday so we can get some food. During that Sunday that they're in church, it also happened to be the Sunday for the Christmas pageant. And they decide, wow, we can, there's going to be more food at this Christmas pageant. We're going to join the Christmas pageant. Um, and because of who they are, they don't only join the Christmas pageant, they really take it over. Um, the six of them take all the primary characters in the Christmas pageant. And they help you, through the book, helps you begin to see um, the Christmas in a different light. Maybe in a light that you would not have expected the Christmas story in a light that you would not have expected. And the thing with the Herdmans is they had never heard the Christmas story before, and they are moved deeply by it, but not, like I said, but not in the way you might expect. They are angry about the injustice of Mary giving birth in a dirty stable. They are irate with Herod, who tried to kill Jesus and want him punished. They are suspicious of the wise men because they gave such impractical gifts. And they showed Mary to be extremely protective of the baby Jesus, just like any mother would be. Excuse me. You know, I love this story because it helps me remember that we can easily sanitize the story of Jesus' birth. The best Christmas pageant reminds us that the incarnation is a shocking story that I believe is meant to surprise us. It's shocking the fact that God comes in the flesh, that Jesus, born as a baby, God, born as a baby, assumes human flesh and human nature for you and me. 
the actual birth of Jesus in this section of Scripture of Luke actually covers only two verses, verses 6 and 7. And we're told in these verses that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, which by many commentators is a uh, foreshadowing of Jesus' death, who will be again wrapped in cloths, laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room in the inn. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read the Christmas stories, I have lots of questions. Not, not, not just about the incarnation, but hey, in this story, was Joseph even present? He's not really mentioned in the birth story here. Um, why was there no room for Jesus in the inn? He'd gone, they'd gone to a town, they'd gone to Bethlehem where they had family. Why in the world was she allowed to give birth in a dirty barn? Did no one care enough to invite her up to a, a clean room? Why not? And if so, why not? Um, what was Mary thinking? The text tells us later on in chapter 2 that after giving birth and the shepherds come, she pondered all this in her heart. I would love to know what she pondered. I would love to know what she was thinking. Um, not just from here, but also from the initial announcement of Jesus' birth back in chapter 1. I would love to have, um, and one day we will in heaven, but have this conversation with, Jerry, with Mary of what was going on in her mind and her heart uh, during the birth of Jesus. This whole section on the birth narrative is so understated, and it's easy. It's really easy for us to become overly familiar with the story, forgetting that this is God's entrance into his creation, into his world. But it's not what we, it's not what was expected of the coming of Christ. I think that's important to remember. When you read the story, no Jewish person was expecting the Messiah to come as an infant, to come without power. And that's why I think this story, when we read it, it's shocking. God comes in the lowest and the humblest of form possible as a baby who needs complete care and help. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has all power and authority, chose to enter the world in a dirty barn filled with animals to a poor family who almost certainly was ridiculed and ostracized for having a baby out of wedlock. Maybe Jesus was even treated poorly as a kid because of the perceived sin of his mother. Jesus came into this world again into the lowest possible of positions in a way that was least expected by any Jewish person of his time. Max Licato, a Christian author, says that this is the Christmas moment that shaped all others to follow. He continues, and he says, In that manger we are introduced to God as a baby. Don't forget this. Jesus entered our world not like a human, but as a human. And what Luke is teaching here is what we call, or what theologians call, the incarnation. And the incarnation is simply, well, there's really nothing simple about it, but the simple definition is that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, assumed our flesh and blood, human nature, without ceasing to be God. This is extraordinary, right? I mean, I I think we hear this story so often that we forget. This is extraordinary. We are being told that God came down out of heaven and assumed human flesh to be like us, to identify with us. That should shock every one of us here today. He came down and took on human flesh. He lived, he walked, he ate with his creation. In the Old Testament, God was accessible only through the mediation of prophets, the priests, right? The tabernacle and later the temple. No Israelite could properly see God. John Calvin said the revelation of God prior to Christ was like a pencil sketch. But in the coming of Christ, this all changed. 
what was once a pencil sketch began to be filled in with greater detail and clarity, so much so that in the New Testament we read, as we read earlier in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, the New Testament is abundantly clear that Jesus was more than a man, that he was more than a prophet, that he is God who has come in the flesh. There are numerous New Testament passages proclaiming the divinity of the Messiah. Pastor David last week actually spoke on some of these passages. But I want us not to forget that, yes, we have all these Old Testament passages. We have New Testament passages that speak on Jesus' divinity. But Jesus himself taught that he was divine. Jesus received um, people coming in and asking for and forgiving people for sin. Uh, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the great I am of Exodus 3, the name of God. Jesus says, if you've seen God, you've seen me. That's an amazing statement from a Jewish man coming from a Jewish man in the first century. Just as importantly, Scripture confirms that not only is Jesus fully God, but that he is fully human. He is born of a virgin under the law in a city to human parents. He, he wept, he laughed, he ate, he slept just like you and me. In John 14, we hear Jesus saying, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Think about this. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Max Licato, again, says it like this. Whoever has seen Jesus weep has seen the Father weep. Whoever has seen Jesus' joy has seen the Father's joy. And whoever has seen Jesus' love has seen the Father's love. You want to know what God is like? Then look at Jesus. He's the exact representation, as Hebrews says, of God Almighty. I know this can be a difficult doctrine for some of us today. The early church struggled, as Joe mentioned, and, and worked diligently to ar- articulate this doctrine of the incarnation. You, you can go and look at their works. You can go and, um, if you have time and you hadn't done this over the holidays, go and take a minute and read over the, the creeds from Chalcedon and the Athanasian Athanasian Creed, which talk about how the early church wrestled with this idea that God, that Jesus was fully God and fully human. You'll be blessed by taking the time to read that this week. But the church did struggle to understand God taking on human flesh. They had no problem, amazingly so, they had no problem believing Jesus was God, but they had real difficulty seeing how he could be human like you and me. Today we have the opposite problem of the early church. Most of us have no problem thinking that Jesus was human, but some of us may struggle believing he's God. You know, I can't go into this in great detail today, but let me just say a few things here. First, you can't pick and choose what teachings of Jesus you like while throwing out the ones you don't like. Or at least you can't do that if you hope to be intellectually honest with Jesus, honest with Jesus' teachings regarding himself. Jesus clearly believed and taught that he was God who had taken on human flesh and human nature. Tim Keller says in Hidden Christmas, and again, I'd highly recommend this book if you haven't read it. It's sort of, I think, one of these secrets that are out there that I'd never heard of until preparing for the sermon. Um, But he says in Hidden Christmas, if Jesus is who he said he is, then you have to center your whole life on him. And if he is not who he has said he is, then he is someone to hate or run away from. No other response makes any sense. Either he is God or he isn't. So he is absolutely crazy or infinitely wonderful. 
wonderful. I hope today you're here because you understand that he is God and that he is infinitely wonderful. Excuse me again. Sorry. That. In the incarnation, Jesus bridged this gap that separated us from God by coming in the flesh so that we could know God personally. Because of the incarnation, he's in touch with our lives and has experienced the human condition in all its messiness. Hebrews 4.15 states it like this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And another great Princeton theologian of the 19th century, B.B. Um, Warfield, says, said it like this. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is, and at the same time, all that man is. One on whose almighty arm we can rest, and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. Look, this means, for you and me, that the heart of Christ is filled with love and mercy and compassion for those of us struggling with relationships, struggling with sin, or simply struggling with the complexities of life. He understands our struggles because he's like you and me. He has lived a human life with all of the problems that you and I have faced. He has faced them. He knows what it is to be human. <clears throat> if you don't believe me on this, take some time over the holidays to read through one of the Gospels. Pick any one of the Gospels and see how Jesus responds to the sinner, to the lost, or the brokenhearted. What you will see, I promise, is the humanity of Christ and all his compassion, kindness, and love toward the outcast, toward the sinner, and yet his righteous anger toward the self-righteous. This is why the angel in verse 10 says, I bring, you new, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. That good news, brothers and sisters, is that the God of creation came down from his heavenly home to dwell with us so we could be with him all the time. The angel continues in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Look, Jesus here is declared Savior, Christ, and Lord. He is the Savior of his people. He's the long-awaited, promised Messiah. And he's the master and ruler of his kingdom, this kingdom that he has inaugurated at his birth that continues today, and he continues to rule and reign in that kingdom. He's declared to be a Savior, which, of course, begs the question, of why do we need a Savior? You know, here's why. Simply, only God can, can forgive sins against God. So if you've ever sinned against God, and if you didn't know this, you have, um, then, you need God, then you need Jesus as a Savior. Right? You've sinned against God, you need Jesus as a Savior. It's as simple as that. We could not do what Jesus has done for us. We can't save ourselves from our sin or our sinful nature. The scripture tells us very clearly, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death. Our sin is what separates us from God and keeps us from enjoying the fullness of this life. So God, in his infinite wisdom and love, sent his son as a savior to secure salvation for you and me. J.I. Packard, a, a famous theologian, summarized Christmas like this. The Christmas message is that there is hope for ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace, 
hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross for you and me. Look, you cannot read the Christmas story without linking it to the cross. It's intractably linked to the cross because without the cross, without the death of Christ on the cross, we would still be mired in our sin. The good news proclaimed by Luke should lead us to respond appropriately as well. And really, we should respond no differently than the wise men of Matthew 2 or Mary of Luke 1 or the, or the angels here in Luke 2. Like them, we too should respond in praise and worship of our triune God for sending his son to save us from ourselves. This is the only true response of belief to the coming of Christ. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, then you, you need to be living a life of praise and worship. And if you're not, then you might want to question whether where your heart is and if it's in the right place of following Jesus. Tim Keller says, our modern world is filled with people who say they believe in Jesus. They say they understand who he is, but it hasn't changed their lives. The only way to explain this is that, the, that contrary to what they claim, they haven't really grasped the meaning that Jesus is God with us. They are not worship, worshiping him for who he is. If you are here today and you don't know or worship Jesus as God incarnate, or you're simply not sure about Jesus, and you have not received his peace promised in this text, and let me encourage you to come and speak to me or one of the elders at the end of the service about the Son of God who came to save a people for himself. Now I realize that most of you are here today because you are followers of Christ. Then I, ask, then I would uh, uh, encourage you to be careful not to sanitize or take the Christmas story for granted and miss the meaning of Jesus coming into our dark and dreary world to bring light. He has taken on human nature and continues with that same human nature for all eternity so that we may experience his compassion and mercy. Because of his love, we have no greater reason to worship and praise Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, Wherever you are today, remember this. Just remember this. Jesus delights in you when you are found in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the amazing good news of our Savior. We thank you, Jesus, that you were more than willing out of love to stoop down to our level to be with us. Because you came down to us, we can deal with the difficulties that life brings our way, knowing you walk with us through your word and spirit. We praise you for showing us the heart of our Heavenly Father. We thank you for your eternal gift of the Spirit who leads us into a deeper longing and love for you. In your name we pray, amen.